Uh, I'm going to call uh, our panelists and our guest moderator up here to the stage, um, and we'll have a panel discussion afterwards. Um, and then I hope you all will stick around with us that after the event is over, uh, we're going to have a reception uh, out back here. Uh, so uh, open bar if you need an incentive to stay. Um, all right. Uh, let me see. Where's the clicker here? <laughs> Caitlin's got the clicker. Here, can you bring it up here? Um, all right, so the basis for this study is the FY 2018 NDAA. Uh, and what that piece of legislation did uh, is it put into motion three independent studies on the future force structure of the Air Force. Uh, the statute directed the study specifically to look at the year 2030 in the future and project what the aircraft inventory should be at that time. It also specified that it wanted unclassified reports submitted to Congress that could have classified uh, annex uh, if necessary. Um, an important thing I would point out is the legislation did not specify that the analysis should be budget unconstrained. Um, uh, Congress was really, it seems like, uh, in this uh, legislative language, and if you look at the report language that went along with it, what they're really looking for is a force-sizing rationale for the Air Force, a vision for what the Air Force inventory of aircraft should look like 10 years from now. Uh, it's also worth noting that the language uh, is very similar to a provision in the FY16 NDAA that directed three independent studies of the Navy uh, future force structure. Now, before we get uh, into uh, this particular, this particular uh, comparative analysis of those three studies. Uh, I want to take a step back and look at what is the current state of the Air Force, what are the trends that have been going on that got us to this point where Congress felt that it was necessary to have this independent look uh, at the future force structure. Um, so I want to go back and look at how did we get to where we are today. Uh, so, you know, I always like to start with, uh, oops, excuse me here, go back one. Uh, yeah, can you take us back one slide? Oh, there we go. Um, so I always like to start by looking at the budget. And so this is the Air Force's budget uh, adjusted for inflation. This is in constant FY20 dollars. Uh, since basically the creation of the Air Force. And so you can see the budget here is obviously cyclic. There are ups and downs over time with the various conflicts uh, our nation has experienced. Uh, the orange portion of the graph you see there on the top right, uh, that's overseas contingency operations and emergency supplemental funding uh, that's been uh, added to the Air Force's budget. Uh, the thing to note here, though, is that the FY20 budget request for the Air Force uh, would bring its budget to the second highest level in inflation-adjusted dollars ever. So we're at a budget uh, right now that is near record levels, but when you look at the aircraft inventory, we're near an all-time low. Uh, so the budget has been climbing, climbing, but the number of aircraft in the inventory has not. So it does beg the question, what's going on? Um, to look at this another way, um, oh, sorry. Uh, 
in strength has also been declining over this time period, particularly active duty in strength, you can see, has fallen sharply uh, since the end of the Cold War, uh, as has the Air Force civilian uh, workforce. Uh, it is also worth noting, though, that the National Guard and uh, Selected Reserve in strength has remained relatively constant over that time period, which means, in effect, that the Guard and Reserve component has become a larger proportion of the force overall. Um, so another way of looking at this is to compare uh, where we are today to where we are the last time we were at a peak in the Air Force's budget, in FY85. Um, so the blue bars that you see here are the active duty in strength, civilian in strength, the aircraft inventory, and the budget in FY85, and the orange bars are where we are in FY20. Uh, you can see active duty in strength is about half of what it was, civilian in strength is about a third less, the aircraft inventory is almost half of what it used to be, all for about the same amount of money in inflation adjusted dollars. So it does beg the question, where's all the money going? Uh, if you look at... Oh, if you look at uh, within the Air Force's budget, at the percentage of the budget uh, going to different titles, um, you see that it has fluctuated quite a bit and some of the ratios have changed in recent years. So it used to be uh, back in the uh, you know, 1950s, 60s, and during the 1980s as well, procurement enjoyed the largest share of the Air Force's budget. We're spending more on procurement than any of the other titles in the budget. Uh, but since the 1990s, that has flipped, uh, and now we're spending more on operation and maintenance funding. Uh, to put this in perspective, during the 1980s, the Air Force spent an average of 26% of its budget on O&M and 36% on procurement. In the 2010s, uh, that's reversed. We have spent 35% of the Air Force's budget on O&M and 25% on procurement. So why is operation and maintenance funding taking up uh, so much a larger share of the Air Force's budget? Well, it's not because we have more airplanes, because uh, we have fewer airplanes. And in fact, if you look at the O&M cost on a per plane basis, uh, it's been growing steadily over time. And again, this is adjusted for inflation to FY20 dollars. Uh, so a larger share of the budget is going to operate and maintain a smaller fleet of aircraft. Uh, so why are the operating costs so much higher than they used to be? Uh, and in my analysis, you can read more of the details in the report, uh, I looked at several uh, possible reasons uh, that turned out to not be the case. So gro the growth rate in operation and maintenance cost of aircraft does not appear to be correlated with the age of aircraft, uh, nor is it correlated uh, with newer, more sophisticated aircraft. Um, sophisticated aircraft. Um, you look at the cost per flying hour oops, of planes, uh, and it varies quite a bit across different platforms, but you'll notice uh, for the selected platform shown here, there's not an obvious trend up over time. Now, I should note that what we're talking about here in the cost per flying hour is the reimbursement rate. This is effectively the marginal cost of flying one more hour of a particular platform. Uh, it does not include all the fixed costs that go along with maintaining these different platforms. Uh, so as you can see here, the most expensive platform, uh, the Air Force, on a marginal cost basis of flying uh, reimbursement rate per hour is the E-4B. Uh, it's a big 747 derivative. Uh, and if you look down at the very bottom, 
It looks like a flat line across the bottom. Uh, that's because of the scale needed to put the E4 in the same chart. Uh, the flat lines on the bottoms uh, are the MQ1 and MQ9, our uh, RPAs, uh, that cost less than $800 per hour to operate. So we see a lot of uh, variation across platforms in terms of the cost per flying hour. Not a clear trend up here, but again, it doesn't include the fixed cost of operating these platforms. You have a fixed cost for the maintenance uh, crews that are needed, the maintenance equipment that's needed, and the training pipelines for the flight crews and for the maintainers that go into that. Uh, even if you only have a handful of aircraft, you still have to have uh, all of those fixed costs. So a better way of looking at it, and I will have to credit uh, one of the reports um, that was uh, congressionally mandated, the MITRE report, actually had this chart in it, uh, and so I, I independently got the same data uh, and remade the chart uh, to analyze it myself. Uh, and what this shows is the total ownership cost uh, per plane. So your total ownership cost includes all of the fixed cost of operating a fleet of aircraft, as well as the variable cost uh, that go on uh, with the aircraft, depending on how much you operate them. The interesting correlation here uh, is with the number of uh, aircraft of a particular type. So uh, you can see here the relationship holds uh, even when you have very different types of aircraft. So you've got you know, on the trend line here uh, in orange, you've got the F-16 right on the trend line, the F-15, but also the F-22, the B-52, the KC-10, the B-1. Um, all of these aircraft tend to follow the same trend line. Uh, and the formula here for uh, any of you math geeks in the room is total operating cost uh, equals 160 million times the square root of the number of aircraft of that type in TAI, uh, total active inventory. Uh, so do the math and you start to realize that maybe what's driving our higher operating cost is the fact that we have so many fleets of small aircraft. And they're not all shown here, by the way. Uh, didn't have the data available for all the small fleets. Um, but if you look at the Air Force's uh, inventory, uh, you'll find that there are dozens and dozens of aircraft types that we maintain in quantities of less than 50. Uh, and so this is a problem uh, for the Air Force going forward. Uh, and I'll come back to, hold that equation in your mind, I'll come back to that again uh, in a little bit. Um, now I looked at uh, a few other things, uh, wanted to look at readiness uh, type issues, uh, so I looked at the mishap rate uh, of aircraft uh, to see what that could tell us, and the trend here is not a positive one. Uh, this is the uh, number of mishaps per 100,000 flying hours for the, the entire fleet. Uh, and you can see that uh, the mishap rate spiked in the 2000s. Uh, it might have been due to operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Can't say for sure exactly what was driving it, but the mishap rate did trend significantly higher. You notice that it suddenly drops uh, in FY10 and beyond. That is at least part uh, and due to the fact that they changed the definition. Uh, the FAA changed the definition of Class A mishaps. Now it's uh, $2 million in property damage um, rather than $1 million. Uh, one would hope that they would just index that to inflation uh, in the future. But even so, even with the new definition, the mishap rate uh, still in the 2010s now still remains higher than it was in the 1990s. Um, one of the main contributors to the higher mishap rate in the 2000s was actually the B-1. 
If you look at the data, the B1 was responsible for 9% of all the mishaps in that decade, but only 1% of the flying hours. So it had 9% of the mishaps and only 1% of the flying hours. Um, the other thing I looked at is overall flying hours of the fleet. Uh, maybe operations are costing more because we're flying more, we're doing more, have a higher op tempo. Uh, that also does not appear to be the case. If you look at the total flying hours of the fleet, um, we have obviously number of flying hours came down significantly at the end of the Cold War. That corresponds to a drop in the inventory of aircraft, so we don't have as many planes to fly. Um, but we have hovered somewhere around 2 million hours per year ever since. You do see some blips here um, in the early 2000s for the initial uh, campaigns into Iraq and Afghanistan, and then again when we had the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so overall flying hours uh, have not really changed that much in the past 20 years. What about the flying hours per plane? Maybe we're flying our planes more. Uh, putting more wear and tear on them. We looked at that as well. The orange line here uh, shows the average hours per airframe uh, over this time period. And again, you see that it has held within a band, within historical norms. There are still some uh, increases there in the early 2000s and around 2010 uh, as the op tempo in Iraq and Afghanistan was at its peak. But since then, we have returned uh, to within historical norms in terms of the number of hours per flat platform. Now, with that said, um, the flying hours per platform has been elevated for certain platforms. So I looked at that uh, on a, uh, by aircraft type. And so what you can see here uh, is that three platforms stand out as getting a lot more flying time, being utilized at a much higher rate than others. All three of those are unmanned systems. Uh, MQ-1, MQ-9, RQ-4. They are flying at a much higher rate, many more hours per airframe per year than any other platform. Now, the B-1, I should also point out, uh, had an elevated uh, uh, flying rate during uh, the period of about 2002 to 2015. Uh, during that period, it flew about 28% more hours per year than it did in the 1990s. But the B-1, if you can see that uh, light yellow line there, uh, it has tailed off in recent years and returned uh, to more of a, a normal historical level for it. Um, but what we're seeing here, though, is that the, the remotely piloted aircraft are really flying at a much higher rate, uh, being utilized much more often than our manned aircraft. Uh, if you look at the mission-capable rates, overall mission-capable rates are declining for the Air Force. It's not a good news story from FY14 uh, to FY18, the most recent year of data that we have. Uh, the total mission-capable rate for the fleet fell from 74% to 70%. Uh, if you look at it on a platform-by-platform platform basis, uh, you'll see that the vast majority of platforms fall below 80% mission-capable rates. Also worth noting that the platforms that have the highest mission-capable rates are, again, the MQ-1, MQ-9, unmanned platforms. So they're flying more, and they have a higher mission-capable rate and a much lower operating cost. Uh, it seems like this is something the Air Force ought to be paying attention to. Um, and 
the trend in the most recent uh, year from FY17 to FY18 is still not getting better, and this is even at a time when the department was paying much more attention to mission-capable rates, uh, and you had a directive from the SecDef saying you wanted certain fighter jets to get to 80% or above, and what we see uh, in that most recent uh, period, FY17 to FY18, is still about two-thirds of the platform's mission-capable rates are declining, not improving. Uh, so to sum this up, current state of the Air Force, uh, the analogy that I use uh, in the paper is this is like a power on stall. We've got the budget at full throttle, but everything else is trending in a bad direction. Um, budget's near an all-time high. Force structure uh, in terms of the aircraft inventory and end strength is near an all-time low. Our operating costs are rising steadily. Flying hours overall are down. Uh, mishap rates uh, are elevated, uh, mission-capable rates are trending down. This is not a, good, uh, not a good story for the current state of the Air Force, and I think that is part of the reason why there's been so much uh, attention paid to what we need to do for the future, uh, and I think this is part of the motivation for Congress setting up the three uh, competing studies. Now, uh, I'll move quickly into the comparison of the studies. I don't want to linger on this too long because we have two of the authors of the studies on the panel uh, who can uh, speak more to their reports than I can. Um, but the three studies uh, that were mandated, one was done by the Air Force itself in conjunction with the Office of Net Assessment. Uh, one was uh, required to be done by a federally funded research and development center uh, that ended up going to MITRE Corporation. And the third one was to be conducted by a 501c3 uh, independent uh, think tank, uh, and that went to the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Uh, now, one of the main differences between the three unclassified reports, and of course I can only analyze uh, the, in this form the unclassified reports, uh, one of the main differences is obviously in the level of details and, and the cover art as well. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, there was a lot more uh, detail that was released in the CSBA report. Uh, it came in at 158 pages, not including the appendices. Uh, the MITRE report came in at 12 pages. The Air Force report uh, was just six pages. Uh, so I'm going to go through, and you know, please forgive me, uh, there, because there is more detail in the CSBA report, uh, more of the discussion uh, in the report that we published today uh, does uh, include the CSBA report. Um, so some of the comparisons here, first of all, the scope and assumptions used by the three different reports. Um, they were required by the legislation to look at the 2030 timeframe, and they all did. CSBA was a little different. It went further uh, and also looked at uh, uh, the future force, 2035 and beyond. The reason there being that some of the capabilities you may be developing now will not be fully fielded by 2030. Uh, the legislation really focused on the aircraft uh, inventory. Uh, that's what it specified as one of the outputs of this. Uh, and so the scope of the analysis for each of the reports, obviously, they focused on aviation force structure. The Air Force went a step further and included ICBMs, cyber, and space. Uh, the MITRE report uh, also included basing structure as part of their analysis. Um, one of the key differences, I think, between the reports is how they handled budget constraints and fiscal concerns. Uh, the Air Force made a decision uh, to make their analysis budget unconstrained, 
Uh, it did not consider uh, what the cost implications would be when determining what the future inventory should be. The other two studies, the MITRE study and the CSBA study, in different ways did consider cost, although none of them you know, put a strict constraint on what their budget could be, but MITRE and CSBA both did look at what the cost implications would be, and the CSBA study uh, actually ran a strategic choices exercise as part of its analysis that uh, looked at uh, various different funding levels uh, for the future and what, what teams would do uh, under different budget situations with the force structure. Um, another key difference is the capability constraints uh, placed on the analysis, the Air Force explicitly says in its unclassified report that it did not consider new solutions or game-changing technologies. Uh, it pretty much limited itself to the program of record, uh, the capabilities that were already planned or currently in development. Uh, the other two studies did not put similar capability constraints on themselves. Um, also, in terms of the output, uh, the uh, CSBA study included detailed force structure tables. You can see number of aircraft by aircraft type. Uh, the MITRE study uh, included uh, changes to the program of records, so you can deduce from that what the 2030 force would be uh, if you add more of this or less of that. Uh, the Air Force report did not include aircraft inventories, it included number of squadrons, and it did not include uh, an average number of aircraft for, per squadron. Uh, so we have to deduce uh, from the Air Force report, uh, translate squadrons into number of tails, because they didn't provide that directly. Um, so, you know, when we get to the, the chart later on that, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt that these are not the exact numbers that the Air Force produced. Uh, it is translating squadrons into number of tails. Uh, also, the Air Force did not provide the data by aircraft type. They only did it by broad categories like fighters and bombers. All right. Uh, in terms of the methodology, uh, the biggest difference here, I mean, they kind of all agree in general on the future operating environment that we've got increasing threats, Russia and China, um, you know, and this is driving uh, some of the changes we need to see in our own force structure. But uh, the biggest difference I want to highlight here uh, is the assumptions that they made about the force planning scenarios and the, the force sizing construct that was used. The Air Force stuck to the uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy. Uh, and if you can see it here on this table, uh, the NDS uh, uh, has a construct for peacetime competition and for wartime. And within wartime, uh, the important thing to, to focus on here is it has two uh, conflicts uh, that might happen simultaneously. One uh, is a conflict where we would be sized to defeat aggression by a major power. And the second one is to deter opportunistic aggression. Uh, so it is one defeat and one deter. And uh, as has been pointed out to me, uh, the deter opportunistic aggression uh, is not specific to a great power necessarily. Um, the uh, CSBA study, in contrast, used uh, a different set of assumptions. Uh, it uh, found that the main drivers of force structure uh, would be the ability to conduct uh, two major wars at the same time, and it used uh, an assumption that we would need to be sized, the Air Force would need to be sized in particular, to defeat two great powers nearly simultaneously. So two defeats versus the Air Force, one defeat, one deter. Uh, the MITRE study 
the analysis really just focused on the Indo-Pacific theater. Uh, and in the unclassified version, at least, it did not mention uh, use of a Russia scenario or other scenarios um, uh, that would contribute and be additive to the force sizing uh, construct that it used. All right, uh, in terms of the key capabilities needed in the future force, um, you can see a quick summary here. I would point out, though, that the constraints that the Air Force put on its analysis uh, led it to what I think is kind of a trivial solution. If you can't have uh, new capabilities other than the program of record, uh, game-changing technologies or anything like that, uh, and you're not budget constrained, so of course you're not going to cut anything, uh, then it leads you to the simple solution of, well, let's just buy more of what we're already buying, right? Uh, and that's what we see uh, from the Air Force analysis. Uh, MITRE um, was uh, the only one of the studies that did a real detailed analysis and then made recommendations on changes in basing structure, uh, and in specifically it recommended including four new bomber and tanker bases in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and the CSBA study really focused more on the capabilities you would need uh, to fight uh, against a great power, uh, such as longer range platforms, longer range munitions, longer range sensors, um, more stealthy capabilities, more long order capabilities, and it included new capabilities like a new uh, remotely piloted aircraft, an MQX, um, that would be stealthy uh, and able to operate in a more contested environment. Now, to get to the, the meat of it here, uh, just comparing the numbers that they came up with by uh, aircraft type. Again, apologies on the Air Force's uh, lack of detail. Uh, that's the best we can do uh, is deduce what the squadron totals would translate into uh, in terms of tail numbers. Uh, point out a few differences here. So one, the MITRE study recommended delaying retirement of the B-1s. So we would maintain 62 uh, B-1s in the force all the way through FY30, uh, whereas the CSBA study said, no, we should continue uh, to retire them as planned. Um, the CSBA study uh, actually accelerated the procurement of the new bomber, the B-21. Of course, the Air Force calls for more bombers, but we can't tell uh, what, they're, what they're doing to get to that. Uh, if they're buying more B-21s or if they're delaying retirements or, or what exactly, what combination uh, that they're pursuing. Uh, another interesting difference here is in the F-15EX, the MITRE study um, called on the Air Force to buy the F-15EX. Uh, the CSBA study did not. Uh, in terms of the F-35, uh, the MITRE study said keep with the program baseline. Uh, but the CSBA study said actually we should accelerate that uh, and buy them at a faster rate. The MITRE study also said that we should take some of the new trainers uh, and modify them for a, a, a light attack type mission, uh, call it the FTX. That would just be a modified version of the trainer that we're already beginning to buy. Uh, and they put in 400 of those uh, in their four structure tables. Uh, in terms of the uh, remotely piloted aircraft, the light strike, uh, ISR, battle management command and control, and tankers and uh, airlift, not a lot of changes here to the program of record. Uh, a couple things to point out. Um, all uh, The CSBA and the MITRE study specifically uh, recommend maintaining the MQ-9 fleet. Uh, CSBA also adds 40 of the MQ-X, uh, new capability. Uh, they have 40 fielded by FY30. 
Uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, BMC2, all of the, the studies seem to agree about retiring the E8. Uh, and in terms of tankers, one difference is the MITRE study uh, specifically calls on continuing to procure the KC-46 once 179, which is the current baseline, once that number is reached, to continue procuring them in the future so we can continue retiring the KC-135s, but overall the fleet sizes remain the same. Uh, and in terms of airlift, uh, no big changes there. One of the things pointed out by the MITRE study, though, is that after FY30, uh, we are going to have to look at the C-17, that it will be reaching the end of its life then, so we'll have to make a decision on a service life extension or replacement. Um, so in conclusion, I uh, just want to point out, I think one of the most valuable things of these three studies is looking at where they all agree. Uh, and where they all agree, I think, are points of consensus that are likely to endure in the future. Uh, even if there's a change in administration, a change in leadership of the Air Force, I think these are some of the themes that we're going to see uh, continuing in the future. So first of all is the general need for more long-range, long-order bombers and remotely piloted aircraft, and then all of the supporting capabilities that go with that, the tankers, the bases, the other enablers. Um, also, the need for more survivable platforms in highly contested environments. If we're talking about great power competition with Russia and China, uh, they have formidable uh, integrated air defense systems we're going to need to be able to operate against, which is very different than the operating environment in the Middle East we've become accustomed to over the past 20 years. Also, all the studies seem to agree that we need more multi-mission capable aircraft, things like tankers that can perform other functions, being uh, comms and data link relays. All the studies seem to agree that we should keep the uh, bomber, uh, the B-21, and the uh, Joint Strike Fighter uh, on the current plan or accelerate them. So they all agree in keeping them as planned or accelerating them, uh, which I should say is notable because you do hear a lot of debate in Washington, particularly about the F-35. Uh, you hear a lot of detractors about it, but that's not what we're finding from these studies. Um, uh, also, they seem to agree that the existing fleet of RPA should not be retired uh, and that we don't need significant changes uh, to airlift, soft, or rotary wing fleets other than what's already planned. Now, major areas of disagreement, as I pointed out before, the foresizing constructs and the planning scenarios used were different uh, between the studies. I think that was part of the intention of Congress is to get alternative ways of looking at the foresizing uh, rationale for the Air Force. And so if that was the intent, then it succeeded. Uh, they've got different approaches that they can choose among. Um, also, the Air Force differed from the other two studies in its assumption uh, about the availability of new technologies. And I think that uh, that you know, greatly changed uh, where its analysis might have gone. Uh, another area of contention among the two studies that is hot in Congress right now is the F-15EX and whether or not we should procure that to replace the existing fleet of the F-15Cs and Ds. Uh, and so here you have a split, MITRE recommended doing it, CSBA did not. Uh, the Air Force report is unclear because they don't provide that level of detail. Um, but I would point out that the Air Force did include procurement of the F-15EX in its budget request, which was submitted at around the same time as this analysis. 
Now, there are a few areas of ambiguity. I say it's ambiguity uh, just because there's not enough detail in all the reports to say definitively that they agree or disagree. Uh, when it comes to light attack fighters, uh, I mentioned before the MITRE study recommended buying 400 modified trainers for that mission, calling it an FTX. Uh, CSBA in its analysis also endorsed that idea uh, that that's a better alternative than using you know, fourth gen fighters or fifth gen fighters, which are pretty expensive to operate. But the FTX is not included in the CSBA force structure tables, and of course the Air Force doesn't provide detail uh, on that to know whether they're recommending it or not. In terms of ICBM modernization, I suspect they all agree, uh, but the MITRE study, uh, the unclassified report at least, didn't include ICBMs in, an, in its analysis. It only focused on the aviation. Uh, the CSBA study does endorse ICBM modernization. Uh, it's not included in its force tables, though, because the force tables are only for aircraft. The Air Force does in, uh, endorse ICBM modernization, and it includes it in its force tables, including all of the ICBM squadrons. Uh, now, with any uh, set of analysis, uh, there's always a number of unanswered questions, and being at a think tank, uh, the unanswered questions are always a uh, you know, topic of a future uh, report or study of some kind. So I frame these all in, uh, in the, like their report covers uh, and titles of future reports, but please, anyone from other think tanks, you're welcome to pick up some of these and take them on. Uh, I do not have enough time to write nine other reports. Um, but some of the areas I, I think that come out of this that need further analysis is one is actually doing a budget constrained analysis of this. Um, the truth is that if you don't have budget constraints, you don't need strategy. Uh, strategy is all about making choices and priorities uh, and budget constraints are what make you uh, uh, force you to have uh, to make those choices. Uh, and so if you're truly budget unconstrained, you can just buy more of everything. Uh, and so that's too simple of a solution, and that's not the world, the real world that we live in. Uh, so I think we need more uh, of a, a budget-constrained analysis to go along with what the Air Force in particular is recommending for its future fleet. Um, other thing that came out uh, when I was reviewing these studies is that we really do need to go back and rethink the roles and missions and how they're allocated across the services. Um, you know, the, the division of, of work that we have today in the military really dates back to the Key West Agreement uh, back in the late 1940s. Uh, I think it's time we go back and revisit that, especially if we're going to be uh, within the next year standing up a new military service, a space force, if Congress chooses to do that. Uh, I think the time is ripe to go back and rethink these things. And in particular, I think there are some missions that the Navy does today uh, with fixed-wing land-based aircraft that are either derivatives of commercial platforms or derivatives of Air Force platforms. And I think we ought to question whether or not the Navy needs to keep those missions and whether that is something that could be picked up by the Air Force. Uh, also, uh, we need an RPA roadmap, I think, uh, that really looks at what are the new missions and new operational concepts uh, for remotely piloted aircraft and how those can be uh, leveraged to greater effect in the future, particularly because the, the findings in this analysis uh, of our experience with the RPAs we have right now. Uh, we get more utilization out of them. They have higher mission-capable rates uh, and lower marginal costs to operate. Uh, so that's something we ought to look at. 
Um, and of course, space was not the focus of these reports. Uh, it does not appear that that was the intent of Congress. They were really focused on aviation inventories in the future. Uh, I think that you know the time is right to have one of these uh, a similar three-pronged analysis of what the future missions and force structure of space capabilities should be uh, for the U.S. military, particularly if we're going to be standing up a new service in the near future. Um, another thing I think that uh, you know we should look at as well is not just what's the inventory of aircraft that the Air Force operates and maintains, but what about all the commercial aircraft that we use as well? The Air Force for many years has relied heavily on commercially owned, commercially operated aircraft uh, for airlift. Uh, the Navy's been using them for tanking. Uh, we've been using them for ISR, for specialized ISR missions. Uh, we've been using them for training uh, as well. And so that really is, you know, the hidden force structure that goes along with the Air Force is commercially owned, commercially operated aircraft. Uh, another thing that came out from my analysis uh, was that one of the factors that could actually limit the ability of the Air Force to grow in the future is not just the budget, but it's the personnel system. Uh, that we find ourselves right now with shortages of personnel in key fields, uh, particularly pilots. And so we've got to look at if we actually want to grow the force in the future, how do we change our personnel system so that we're more effective and efficient uh, at recruiting and retaining the people with the skills that we really need uh, for the future force. Uh, another factor that came out of this, all the studies talked about munitions and how important munitions were and the types of capabilities that we needed in munitions in the future. We need a munitions roadmap. Uh, we need to look as carefully at the inventory and capabilities of munitions that we need in the future as we do uh, aircraft in the future. Uh, and the last one here, uh, is really an important one, I think, uh, that's why I saved it for last, is we need a strategy uh, in the Air Force uh, to reduce and eliminate these small fleets. Uh, we've got a lot of small fleets of aircraft, one of them shown here, a lot of business jet derivative aircraft uh, in the Air Force inventory, uh, and it is driving the operation and sustainment costs through the roof. Uh, and that is ultimately limiting the Air Force's ability to grow. Uh, and so to put this in kind of, you know, modern terms and what people are talking about today, uh, the Air Force has been talking about this digital century series approach to acquiring the next generation air dominance fighter. Um, I would just point out that there could be a downside to this as well. I see all the many reasons uh, that the digital century series approach is a good one in terms of acquisition, uh, in terms of bringing in innovative uh, new technologies into the force quicker, in terms of maintaining competition in the industrial base, but let's consider for a moment. Uh, what if we end up buying five different fleets of aircraft um, with a, a number of about 72 aircraft per each of those fleets. So each one of these little aircraft icons represents 72 aircraft. So basically a wing's worth of aircraft. If we buy five different types of aircraft, if you go back to the, uh, the chart I showed you earlier, that the relationship of total ownership cost uh, to the number of aircraft of a particular fleet in the inventory, uh, what that tells us, if you add up the numbers here, um, five fleets of 72 aircraft each, that's 360 aircraft total. The steady state uh, ONS cost of that will be about 6.8 billion per year. If you had one fleet of aircraft of all of one type, you could have 1,800 of them, five times more for the same cost, same ONS cost. 
Uh, so that is what that is the consequence of small fleets trying to maintain a large number of small fleets of aircraft uh, ultimately drives you to a lower inventory. Uh, and so that's one of the things I think we need to keep in mind in terms of future acquisition strategy uh, and you know the type of, of capabilities we're going to build in the force in the future. Uh, if you want to get numbers up, uh, you need to consolidate uh, into you know smaller number of aircraft types. So with that, uh, welcome uh, Valerie Insina up to the stage here. She's going to moderate the panel discussion. All the other panelists can come join us on stage as well. everyone. I am Valerie Insina. I am the air warfare reporter at Defense News. Um, I am honored to be a part of this distinguished panel, or at least the very lucky person that gets to grill them. Um, I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions, but we have over an hour, and I would really like to turn it over to you guys, you know, more quickly than more late. Um, and I know you want to hear what they have to say and probably already know them, so let me just go ahead with some very short introductions. Um, so immediately to my right, we have Mark Gunzinger. He is the Director of Future Aerospace Concepts and Capability Assessments at the Mitchell Institute, and he was also one of the authors of the CSBA report. Um, next to him, we have Todd Harrison, who you know. Um, he is the director, director of Budget Analysis at, at CSAS, as well as the head of the Aerospace Security Project. Uh, next to him, we have Heather Penny. She is the senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute. Um, next to her, we have Jeremiah Gertler. He's a specialist of military aviation at the Congressional Research Service. And next to JJ, we've got Dave Gerber. He is a senior principal systems engineer at MITRE, and he is also one of the authors of the MITRE report. Okay, so let me take a seat, and um, then I'll get some started with some questions. Okay, so I figured that we would start with the Air Force study, which it rolled out at least a very small part of it with a lot of gusto last year, last September at AFA. Um, you might have gotten a, copy, a coffee cup with the number 386 on it because they were so hyped about having this 386 squadron goal. Um, Todd said earlier that was not informed by the budget and they did not look at groundbreaking technology. He characterized it as a little bit of a trivial solution. So now what you're seeing with the Air, Air Force, and you guys can dispute this if you think I'm wrong, but I think you have started to see them open the aperture a little bit. They um, are uh, kind of pointing to the Air Force uh, Warfare Integrate Integrated Capability Lab that they've started up. And when you hear uh, leaders talk about this now, they say, you know, 386 is important, it's still the goal, um, but, you know, dot, 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 maybe there's a different way to do this. And AFWIC is, you know, looking at these other possibilities, looking at this at a more budget-constrained, um, from a more budget-constrained eye. So um, my question for all of you guys, um, and anyone can chime in here, is, is this a good thing? Should we, should we see this as them backing off that 386 number? And how do you think we might see those goals shift? 
I'll, I'll take a crack at that. Uh, what the NDA asked us to do was to take a look at uh, Air Force aircraft inventory to support the defense strategy, the new direction of the defense strategy, which is great power competition, deterring great power conflict, and if necessary, uh, to defeating great power aggression. Uh, I have been, I was in almost every quadrennial defense review that the department held, and I helped lead the 2006 uh, uh, QDR. And the, the response from Congress, every time duty handed in a report of the QDR, the response from Congress was the same. Look, we want to know what DOD needs in the way of force structure, active reserve component mix, uh, capabilities, and budget to execute the defense strategy at low to moderate level of risk. But what you've given us is a QDR report that says this is what we can afford within the budget constraints established by this administration. That's not what Congress wanted to know. So they wrote this legislation asking for force planning, for sizing construct and force structure to support the defense strategy. And I will add, they would expect it to be at a low to moderate level of risk without establishing a constraint. What is required to support the Defense Department's own strategy? That was the answer. Now, we all know that we're probably not going to be able to afford everything that CSBA recommended in its report. And the fact of the matter is, if so much force structure is required to support a defense strategy, and you can only afford that much, that constitutes the risk you're accepting. And whether or not that's acceptable is up to not just the administration, but Congress to make that determination. So my concern with some of the, um, the, the language that we've seen from the Air Force is, uh, as AFWIC is considered the trade-offs in a budget-constrained environment, is are we in a CAF redux redux? So as we remember, uh, there was a point um, in the 2000s where the Air Force deliberately divested a significant number of its fourth-generation fighters with the intention of being able to reprogram that funding into fifth-generation aircraft. However, that money just simply disappeared. It was not actually used to be able to beef up the Air Force inventories. So my primary concern is, are we in a situation like that today where AFWIC is considering what do we have that's currently within our program of record, currently within our aircraft inventory that we can divest for the promise of something future better? So since we haven't seen this be successful in the past, I'm concerned that this is setting the Air Force up for an even smaller and then also an even older uh, fleet. Now the question could be is, are those programs already within the classified budget? But because we don't have insight within the classified budget, I think that tr constitutes a tremendous amount of risk, especially given that most of that classified budget is actually passed through funding and does not contribute to core Air Force capabilities. I'm going to say a small word in defense of the Air Force on this, which is that the target date of 2030 that was established in the legislation, and which CSBA, I believe, very wisely looked beyond, if you're looking at the Air Force of 2030, those are programs that are really already in progress. There's very little that you could start now that we're in 2020 and have it ready by 2030. So it's not entirely unreasonable for them to look at the force that way. 
A little more detail would have been nice, though. I'd like to add to that, if I could, uh, very quickly. One of the charts, Todd, that you showed, uh, showed what CSBA recommended in a way of a 2034 structure. If you read the report, we really recommend a future force structure 2035 plus, which is significantly larger, has greater capacity and a very different force mix, especially regarding man-on-man, long-range, short-range uh, capabilities. Uh, the 2030 point, which is required by the uh, uh, by law, uh, was a waypoint for us to that future force. So you saw some growth, significant growth in long-range strike capabilities. The future force, frankly, would buy or have uh, more than twice the number of B-21s than perhaps the Air Force is currently planning to procure, based on our analysis and force uh, sizing construct. I'll put a vote in also for the, uh, for the Air Force in saying that I think that the uh, Air Force 386 study absolutely had to be done. And, and now the, uh, how that's going to be reconciled with the budget realities is something that was entirely predictable and, and also has to be done. Um, as part of its study, MITRE estimated the cost of the 386 uh, plan as well as the cost of raising MC rates across the board and the idea that there's a, the recapitalization of the Reagan era procurement that is now all, all these aircraft are now reaching the end of their service lives. And when we added those three numbers up, the, the number was, was very, very large. And that's when we decided to take a, what I would call a budget reasonable or a budget realistic approach to the problem and, and try to make sure that the things that we recommended in our report were uh, cost informed. So, you know, I would add, in my view, the right way to do any of the, uh, this analysis um, is it should be strategy-driven, first of all, but budget-informed. Uh, you've got to consider what it's going to cost, and if you do the analysis and it comes up and it's a ridiculously high number and you know that that's never going to fly, uh, then you got to go back and you got to say, we got to do this better. Uh, and we may have to scale back uh, what we were envisioning uh, and take a little more risk to make this more reasonable. It's not that you need a hard constraint, but you do need a reasonableness constraint. The other thing I would point out is the Air Force does say in its own study uh, that the future force structure is more than just a number. Uh, you know, and it is tempting to want to have a single number like the Navy has, you know, that they, they get a lot of mileage out of 350 ships, although is it 355 or 350? I mean, they go back and forth. Um, I think now it may end up being 312, but they get a lot of mileage out of, you know, the number of ships uh, in the battle fleet. Uh, and so it's tempting for the Air Force to want something equivalent, but I don't think that does justice uh, to what's really needed in the force. It is a much more complex uh, situation than that. It's not just tail numbers, it's capabilities. Uh, it's what's the, the mix of capabilities uh, across the force should be in the future. I'll add one quick uh, comment to that. Um, if you have a strategy resource mismatch, your force structure is too old, too small to support the uh, national defense strategy. There are several things you can do. First, well, you can always change the strategy requirements less. Okay, now we don't have a mismatch. Uh, another way of doing it is increase resources and grow the size of the force. Another way of doing it is, of course, just accept the risk. 
as long as you understand what you're walking into. Uh, that's kind of the position the Air Force is in. It's too small and it's too old to support the defense strategy. The answer 386 isn't going to change, but it's probably going to end up accepting significant risk if it can't grow to the size that it says it needs to, to support the strategy. There is a, a fourth one. This is my added comment. You can also think about how we might operate differently in the future with a different mix of capabilities and so forth. Might that reduce requirements for some platforms or uh, force structure, it, it could. So that's why we thought it was so important to step out into the future and take a look at those different operating constructs, new capabilities that could significantly impact uh, Air Force requirements, both in capabilities and capacity. Those are all really good points. Um, to, to, to Heather's point, you know, talking a little bit about divestment, that's something that the Air Force leadership has sort of started to signal already uh, last month, like, yeah, last month, the acting secretary of the Air Force, Matt Donovan, um, said that there are going to be some, you know, kind of tough choices coming up in this next budget. Um, so then when you look across these three studies, particularly the Air Force one, which they've foot stomped this 386 numbers, uh, does that could that potentially undermine future force structure decisions that they have to make in, 20, uh, in, F, in FY21 and beyond? You know, particularly if they do decide that they have to divest aircraft, accept a little bit more risk, or opt toward a different mix of capabilities. Um, and, you know, if they do have to do this, maybe this is a good question for JJ, but how can the Air Force actually sell a different construct to Congress rather than this 386? I'm not sure I should be in a position of advising the service how to sell my clients <laughs> on a particular program. But one of the things that Congress values, and frankly one of the reasons this study was asked for, is predictability, is understanding what the future looks like because only then can they build toward it. Congress, yes, is working on a year-by-year -year basis, but it certainly helps to know where you're trying to get. That goes, too, to the question of budget constraint. If you ask the budget unconstrained question, where would you like to go on vacation? Budget is no object. The list may be very different from subsequently saying, there are 10 gallons in the tank, where would you like to go on vacation? Congress each year knows how many gallons they have in the tank. But if they have an idea of where the ideal is, they can get closer to it than if that ideal has not been set out as a potential destination. Anyone else want to weigh in on this? Well, my concern about, about continuing to, uh, to maintain this discussion of divestment um, is, is how does that impact your ability to actually grow your force structure? If we understand that the service is already too small and too old, uh, and you willingly choose to give up existing force structure and accept even further risk, what is the opportunity that the service has to then be able to replace that? And there's a certain point at which you can do new things with old stuff, but there's a certain point at which that stops in, your, in terms of your ability to actually execute what the national defense strategy demands of the service. And if, the, if there's already risk within that, uh, I think that uh, divesting force structure without clearly demonstrated new capabilities in hand 
in production and having demonstrated effective operational concepts that can execute that and make up for the smaller force structure that the service is not only setting itself up to fail, but as really the foundation for all of our joint military operations is setting up all of the services to fail. Okay, switching gears a little bit, um, wanted to talk a little bit about something that hasn't been mentioned, multi-domain command and control. It's a huge priority for General Goldfein, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He made it one of his top three priorities and talks about it pretty much any chance he gets. Um, so uh, for, for Mark and for Dave, how do, how do each of these studies define MDC2? And, and is it, was it included in the Future Force construct that you guys created? What does that look like? Um, and for the rest of the panelists, if you guys want to chime in, do you, how, how do you guys see MDC2 actually occurring within the Air Force, or does it even? Okay, I'll, I'll take uh, first crack. Did we consider multi-domain command and control in our uh, study? Well, first, the, uh, the concept is still rather amorphous, not well-defined. We defined it to the extent that we thought we could in our study, and we emphasized the need to shift from a platform-centric future force planning construct to one that takes a look at different family assistance for county air, for strike, and, and, and other uh, missions the Air Force is responsible for. Uh, this, these family systems would be able to work together. Man-on-man uh, -man teaming is certainly a part of that. They'd be integrated, they'd be networked and uh, they would have fewer, frankly, nodes uh, that would be vulnerable to attack by, on the part of a, a great power uh, aggressor. So in our study, we, we did define that. We had some examples of what those family assistants might look like, but I also think that um, uh, Heather could add to that in her work with uh, Mosaic as well. So I'll pass it over to Dave so you can have some first comments. I think there's two sides to the MDC2, and uh, the first one is what's the technical and technological infrastructure that's required to support it? Because if you're actually going to reach into multi-domains, then you need to have a technical infrastructure that can, can do that. The second thing uh, that's required then is the, the doctrinal foundation that is shared by all the services to be able to exploit that technological uh, foundation. Uh, the, the doctrinal side of that was not something we looked at in, in our study. However, we felt that there were opportunities to use the uh, Air Force uh, of the future, the inventory as we go towards 2030, to help build that technological foundation. Uh, for example, we uh, found that uh, in the analysis we did with basing and missions and so forth, uh, our tanker fleet was ubiquitous to say the word. It's, it, was, it was everywhere, operating all the time, and that suggested to us that, that uh, including uh, capabilities in our tankers that would allow us to support that technological infrastructure for MDC2 uh, might be a way of taking it with us wherever we go. Uh, and that says nothing uh, against any of the other modes such as space and, and so forth. Um, the second thing is that uh, it would be good for as many, if not all, of the platforms, weapons, people, and so forth to be able to connect to that infrastructure 
so that uh, so that they can play, and that's all services and all platforms. And because if you're leaving something out, if it's important enough to have it to begin with, then it should be playing in the joint battle space. So, so those are the two sides. Uh, how we consider this, though, to be a uh, you know capabilities that would be uh, built into or 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 part of that multi-mission type of approach to platforms, not necessarily something that's a, a dedicated uh, uh, MDC2 platform, so to speak. Thank you. So I think um, one of the challenges of MDC2 is we're seeing that more from a, a program of uh, record type of perspective, rather than a transformative shift in operational concepts. In terms of this transformation, I do think that the Air Force is uniquely positioned to be able to lead uh, not just the technology, but the thought for how we do warfare in the future, because it, it uh, covers the three domains of airspace and cyber, right? And when you talk about multi-domain, we're talking about moving across all of these different domains. So if the Air Force can be the thought leader in developing the new doctrine of how we uh, operate across all these different domains in a very uh, fires or effects agnostic kind of way, right? Because that's really what multi-domain command and control is intended to do is through an observational or sensor fabric, find those targets, determine the, the, the best, most effective uh, effector, and then be able to automatically at machine speed be able to target that effector against that, uh, against that desired target. But what happens when we move from air, space, or cyber to determine that for a specific target, there's an Army Long Range Precision Fires Battalion that is, would be the best position to provide that kind of effect, right? Now we're moving beyond the, the JFAC, the Joint uh, Forces uh, Air Component Commander, to the Land Component Commander in terms of control. And, and command. And I don't think that from uh, a, a doctrinal perspective, an organizational bureaucratic perspective, that we're there yet. So I think that there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done from the doctrinal and organizational uh, perspective uh, that before we can truly see the, the total benefits of MDC2. But I do think it's important to understand that this isn't just about technologies and about networks, although those pieces are essential enablers to make this happen, it is ultimately about operational concepts. Yeah, I just want to add a couple of thoughts here. So I want to echo what Dave said, that this is not something you want to create a new fleet of you know, single mission aircraft that do multi-domain command and control. Uh, and I don't think anyone's proposing that, uh, but it's important to remember that's the last thing we want to be doing is creating a new small fleet of aircraft from a cost perspective. Um, but I think, you know, as, as Heather was uh, talking there, it, it made me think how this reinforces in my mind the need uh, to have a new Key West agreement. We need to go back and we need to look at roles and missions when it comes to things like, you know, multi-domain command and control. Uh, and who's going to be responsible for what? Uh, and the services need to know that and they need to understand that. Uh, who's got what parts of this? You know, we're looking at a future where we're going to have a, a much more networked battle space uh, that we're going to have to, our advantage, our military advantage is going to be uh, in our ability to uh, network our forces uh, across the entire joint force. Uh, and so we don't want to get into a situation where each of the services is pointing like this saying, I thought you were doing that. Um, you know, I thought you were responsible for that part of it. Uh, we need to make this clear, I think, from the beginning. So um, this is kind of a more wide-looking question. 
for all of you guys, you know, what sort of groundbreaking tech do you guys think could be really disruptive? These studies looked at a pretty finite period of time, a very close period of time, 10 years or 10, 10 years and change in the, for the CSBA study. Um, but we haven't heard a lot about things that could potentially be big game changers like swarming or attributable drones, advanced uses of AI or machine learning, directed energy. Um, could any of those come into play in the future Air Force and how, um, or is it, too, is it still too soon to say? No, it's not uh, too soon to say. And uh, frankly, what we have in CSBA's report uh, mirrors what the Air Force and other services have been saying about game changers. Uh, uh, direct energy, certainly. If you take a look at air missile defense, the ability to defend our forward air bases is going to be critical to our ability to generate combat power in the future. We cannot do it relying on kinetic weapons alone. We're going to need electronic warfare systems, uh, high-power lasers, high-power microwaves, less expensive kinetic interceptors, and other things that will have the capacity to defeat large swarms of unmanned aircraft, cruise missile attacks, and as well as ballistic missile attacks on our bases in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific, for example. Uh, clearly, hypersonic weapons which are going to be significantly more survivable than the legacy weapons we have today, could change how we conduct strikes and certainly reduce the number of uh, strike aircraft we might need in the future. If your weapons are more survivable, they're more likely to arrive at the target you uh, aim them at, then perhaps you need to use fewer weapons, fewer sorties and that in the future, and that has an impact on the uh, inventory requirements. Uh, so those are just a couple of examples. AI, certainly, uh, in terms of multi-domain command, command and control, the ability to uh, automate and uh, uh, a lot of the functions that are currently performed by men in the loop, shifting more to men on the loop uh, architectures to close kill chains effectively and to remove latency from our kill chains so we can do it more quickly than our adversary can. That's going to be another game changer. Yeah, um, you know, things that come to mind, and you know, in addition to what Mark was saying, um, is you know the need for longer range munitions, not just air to ground, but air to air as well. Um, you know, if you can reach and hit someone further from a further difference, that's going to be a, a major advantage. Um, also, I think stealthy uh, RPAs in large numbers. Um, that that's something that I think you know we are likely to see in the in the fleet uh, in the near future for ISR and strike. Um, I think uh, uncrewed tankers is something uh, that we ought to be looking at as well, uh, you know, where you could change some of our conops or adapt them to expect that they'll just be a tanker on an orbit indefinitely. Uh, we'll refuel the tanker, uh, but the tanker will stay there um, indefinitely. And the other thing I think that we got to look at in the future are what's the potential for large constellations of satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, large constellations of small sats, I should say, uh, doing things like synthetic aperture radar, uh, ground moving target indication, things that you can do from low Earth orbit um, that uh, you might not want to do uh, with aircraft in the atmosphere because for geopolitical reasons you might not want to go uh, into certain areas, uh, reveal that you're there, um, or potentially provoke someone where you can pass over in space without being provocative. Um, I think, you know, the technology is there now. We're seeing it a lot. 
uh, from commercial companies uh, are pitching this kind of technology for commercial applications. Uh, I'm excited to see the military starting to look at, at these types of systems as well. So I echo everything that, uh, that Mark and Todd had said, and I think an important piece of this uh, to build off of what Mark was saying about um, artificial intelligence is how do we enable uh, our, our unmanned systems to not only be autonomous, but also be collaborative and, and, and smartly collaborative. So how do we have, for example, if Todd is talking about large fleets of autonomous, uh, stealthy UAVs that are out there collecting in the battle space, how do they collaborate and cross-queue with uh, the, his constellation of low Earth uh, small box satellites, right? And then how do they understand who needs that information? How do we resolve that information, resolve the ambiguities, create a very precise uh, common operating picture, and then immediately send that information to the node that needs it most to, to then be able to manage the battle space? How do we create decision aids that are essentially a match.com for targets and effectors, right? Um, and do that in a smart way. And you can kind of similarly think about it as, a, as an, an airborne fact, right, where in his A-10 and it, with his grease pencil is keeping uh, track of who's in his cast stack, how much time they have, what kind of weapons they have, uh, and so forth. How do, we, how do we do that and use uh, artificial intelligence to be able to provide us the best way to, uh, the best decision aids to be able to, to help within the battle space? So I think that um, the focus on technologies like directed energy, uh, like uh, hypersonics, like advanced weapons, like advanced materials are essentially important, but I think the real game changers are those technologies that allow us to change our operational concepts. There's not a lot left on the table by this point that's new, but two, two that are already extant technologies but need significant improvement, uh, or at least where significant improvement could make a significant operational difference. One, everything you've heard about so far in terms of effects relies on a secure network. And the level of network security, the ability of all these machines to talk to each other, the ability to guide weapons, uh, needs to be raised to a level that we're not currently operating at, certainly in the white world, uh, because it's a common technology that lots of other people understand and understand how to break. The other significant uh, technology, and it's existed for some time at small scale, is runway independence. The Air Force is looking for ways to operate from more and more places. The harder it is to find you, the harder it is to attack you, the less physical facility you have, the less vulnerable you are to the other side. We have that at the tactical aircraft level to a great extent. We do not have it for larger systems. And so being able to operate from essentially unprepared locations that are not predictable locations would make a significant operational difference. I have a couple of, uh, of points that I think might, might uh, add to this. First of all, uh, all the new technologies that are out there are, are great and, and we and have great promise and we need to push to find out how those technologies can enhance or even offer great le greater leverage into the battle space. However, uh, we have to always come back to the core capability of, of the aircraft platform, which is what we were talking about in these studies. Can you base it and can it reach the fight? If you cannot base it, 
and it can't reach the fight, it can swarm all day long and do all that other stuff, and, but it's not going to be a factor for, for your fight. So that's why we chose to stick to the basing and the fundamental capabilities and reach of the aircraft platform as, as our kind of core construct. In terms of uh, game-changing technologies, I'd like to say that I think that we have some very game-changing technologies in production right now, or about to be in production with the B-21 and the F-35. And we need to avoid the same problem we had with the F-22 and the B-2 so that we don't have this ready to go in production and then curtail production and end up with another small fleet. Uh, finally, I would like to foot stomp the munitions side of this. Aircraft, well, you know, when we get into the directed energy and so forth, maybe just the presence of an aircraft will ultimately kill something, but right now, uh, aircraft don't kill things, weapons do. And the uh, ability for long-range standoff weapons, whether it's uh, cruise missiles, hypersonics, air-to-air, -to, to put legacy aircraft, fourth-gen aircraft like B-52s, B-1s, and F-15s uh, back into the game in these advanced fights should not be underestimated. And once again, that goes back to a, a, uh, a payload-centric approach the platform is important, we have to keep doing that, but, but those payloads are very important and the capabilities of those payloads to do things that would be much, much more expensive to design into a platform uh, shouldn't be underestimated. Thank you. So I have a ton of more questions that I could ask. Oh, I'm sorry, did I step on someone? Oh, sorry. Um, so I have more questions I could ask, but I would love to turn it over to the audience to start asking questions. Um, do we have a mic or can I just call on people? Okay. Cool. About this gentleman right here, um, third row with his hand up. Stand up and introduce yourself. I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Um, I'm wondering uh, how you can budget when FMS is so unknown, as when Turkey's fleet disappears from the budget and changes the price structure of everything. More importantly, I'm wondering if there's any way to bound the uh, ISR fleet in the unclassified world. Um, is that a fungible stovepipe? Is it shared with the agencies? Um, how does that work? Can you shed any light on that as best you can? I'll take you on the, on the question about you know foreign sales of some of our major weapon systems. Um, if you take the F-35 program, for example, um, you know foreign sales are an important part of it, but any particular country uh, like Turkey or, or any other, they are a relatively small number of the total number of aircraft being procured. And if you take them out, it's not a positive uh, for us. Uh, it can cause unit uh, costs to go up, but not by a significant factor. Um, you know, I think a bigger, bigger problem, you know, for the F-35 program is Turkey was also a supplier in the program of certain parts, and so now you got to go out and get other suppliers uh, for those components that were coming from Turkey if they're going to be completely removed from the program. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not as, as concerned about foreign customers pulling out of our major weapon systems because we are the predominant buyer. Uh, DOD is by far the predominant buyer. I'm more concerned about Congress. <laughs> well, 
I was going to follow on that. Does anyone want to talk about ISR? <laughs> Please. Okay. Not much we can say. All right. Is there a way to get uh, figure five back up? Thank you, because this goes to the question about whether Congress uh, is willing to fund things sufficiently. Okay, thank you. This, this chart was displayed for the O&M line. Uh, I'm gonna pretend there's a laser in my finger and direct your attention to the green line, which is the procurement line. It's not just Congress uh, where the budget uh, is, of of, is of concern. If you look at the green line, the procurement line, back in 4851 there, you've got a, a very large spike. That's the reconstruction of the Air Force after the Second World War. But that also includes the first generation jet aircraft, right? P-59 is in there, P-80 is in there, T-33 is in there. You have another spike, 57 to 60, that's the second gen. That's F-86, F-84. F90, F94, let's see if this works. Right. Third spike, late 60s, that's Vietnam, that's the Century Series, third generation of aircraft, F100 through 105, and the F110, which became known as the F4. So one, two, three generations. Here's your fourth generation spike in procurement. F15, F16 in the mid 80s, that's when the Air Force really got into fourth generation in a big way. And the fifth generation spike in procurement is not here. Now granted, there are a lot of competing priorities within the budget, but you don't see right now in the Air Force program, much less congressional, uh, a place where we really put an emphasis on building the numbers in the force. It's a much longer, more gradual process than we've seen before. I'd like to add to that very quickly, taking a look at the same chart. Now, Todd, uh, this is the entire Air Force budget. Yes. It doesn't break out the blue budget. No, it's total Air Force budget. Okay, so this includes the pass-through uh, classified ISR, national space, and other capabilities in the budget. If you take a look at the Air Force's blue budget, you can drive procurement and some of these other numbers down significantly. And then if you take a look at new aircraft procurement, uh, on that chart, yeah, you might be able to see the line. Frankly, it has been flat since the procurement um, heyday of the Reagan administration. Uh, there's a small spike in early aughts to procure uh, RPAs that the Air Force now has in the force, most of which are not suitable for high-end uh, conflict to penetrate uh, um, uh, high-threat areas and so forth. Uh, the Air Force is beginning to procure fifth gen and investing in follow-on capabilities, but frankly, that has not risen to the level of investment that will allow the Air Force to replace its increase, increasingly aging force. So you have to take a look at the, uh, the blue budget and take a look at aircraft procurement, which has remained absolutely uh, flat over the last uh, about a decade or so. One of the things I point out in the study is that the uh, Navy's aircraft procurement budget has been higher than the Air Force's procurement budget for at least the past decade. So the Navy spends more buying airplanes than the Air Force, which is odd. With a smaller <laughs> force of yeah. inventory, yes. Okay, do we have another question? This gentleman over here. 
Thank you. Alvin Drew from NASA. Um, you talked about small fleets as being the bane for the Air Force's existence, um, but you also come against things like complexity being a, the devil and some of those things. So if you have a multi-role everything where it's, you know, it's a floor wax and a dessert topping all in one. Um, are there other places out there where you can realize those economies of scale, like say common engines, common avionic suites, other commonalities such that you get some of those benefits of having large fleets without trying to overtax a, a small um, number of different variants of, of aircraft? I mean, I think there are, you hit on a lot of the things you can try to do. The key is uh, you actually have to maintain commonality. Um, and you have to leverage the commonality. And if you look at something like the Joint Strike Fighter program, it started out that we were going to have, you know, a common fighter across the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. Uh, and as it ended up, there are really three different aircraft types that are related, um, but not a huge amount of commonality uh, across them. So you can start out with good intentions, uh, trying to have common engines, you know, common components, you know, avionics and things like that. But the devil is in the details. You actually have to maintain that commonality um, and, and maintain it in a way that you can reduce your fixed cost of maintenance and training and things like that. That's the key if you want to bring down cost. But there are a lot of, of small aircraft fleets in the Air Force inventory today um, that are you know, not that complicated. They're airlift platforms. They're very small business jet uh, platforms uh, that we maintain in small numbers. We could eliminate and combine some of these fleets together. Uh, and you know, some of the special mission aircraft that we have, like J-STARS, you know, the Air Force is already planning to do this. Uh, maybe you could do that same mission uh, using other aircraft, uh, sensors that are on other types of aircraft that we can fuse together and still do the mission, just do it in a different way. You don't need to have that dedicated small fleet of aircraft to do it. So I think you know, this is not even a, a strategic question. I think this is you know, really a financial management question of where can we go and find other savings like that where we can combine fleets together, still do the mission, and do it just as well, if not better, uh, than we do it today, uh, but without maintaining all these different specialized fleets. And yeah, the airport, slightly tangential to that, uh, I think there is a good news story building here, and that's in the B-21 program, which of course is classified, we don't get into subcomponents and so forth, but the Air Force has been pretty forthright saying this is less a matter of invention than it is integration. Taking mature technologies, maybe even some components, my speculation, from other programs and integrating it to reduce costs and to accelerate its development and fielding. I think that is potentially a, a great news story. And to the Air Force's credit, uh, one of the aspects that they're looking at when Dr. Will Roper, the acquisition executive, talks about his digital century series, those deliberately creating small fleets, it is with the notion that there is great commonality, at least on the engine side and on the cockpit side, so that you don't have to train people differently for different aircraft, whether pilots or maintainers. There's a lot of commonality there. You can train them once, and they can work on a number of these different types. So the Air Force does have these things in mind as they go forward. Let's hope they can execute on it. <laughs> I just wanted to add that the, the fleet size may not just be uh, the number of aircraft possessed by the Air Force or the Navy but uh, the number of aircraft actually in operation, um, perhaps on the commercial side too, and uh, that's a good example. That's the, uh, the P-8 on the 737 platform and the many different uh, Gulfstream variants that are coming into the Air Force for various missions. 
I, I will say, though, that the numbers that we've heard um, Mr. Roper talk about, 72 aircraft as a minimum viable fleet number, simply just doesn't make sense, not only in terms of sustainment, maintenance, um, our operational costs, training of pilots, but from uh, an employment perspective, uh, it just simply doesn't make sense to, to um, have a fleet that is that small. Uh, and furthermore, cockpit commonality isn't the only thing that matters in terms of pilot training. Pilots have to be trained to be able to handle all of the systems within the aircraft as well as emission systems. So while I understand that there's some efficiencies that, that should be gained, and if you take a look at the at the Air Force of the past, pilots flew a number of different aircraft as they cycled quickly through those aircraft. They were also simpler, had much more commonality, and the mission systems were not nearly so complex. So it's not uh, simply as easy as having the same engine and the same cockpit, uh, and, it and it certainly wouldn't be effective or efficient uh, to have a fleet as small as 72. So if you look at Todd's, um, at, at, if you looked at uh, the, the chart, the sort of the knee in the curve ended up being about 250 aircraft. And if you take a look at the Century Series, which Roper is trying to emulate, really the smallest fleet there was in the mid-300s. Far cry from 72. So in terms of maturing that notion, I think really we need to look at what are the actual objectives that we need to have as a service rather than just biting off on a sound bite. I really am a force planner. Uh, the Air Force has a force that's too small and too old. We've all said that. We all said that in our reports. Frankly, it needs to recapitalize. It needs to modernize. In batches of 72 aircraft every few years isn't going to allow the Air Force to do that. Uh, is the Air Force going to acquire 72 different model aircraft each and every year? Think of the EMD and the costs associated with trying to do that. that simply doesn't make sense from a force planner's perspective, from the perspective of trying to reach 386 in 2030 or even 2035 plus. So something that Todd said that I would like to piggyback off of and maybe pose as a question to the rest of you guys is he mentioned, you know, special mission aircraft as a potential uh, door to con do some co consolidation and uh, maybe get some operating costs down that way. Uh, and it's true, you know, you've got a ton of platforms like Rivet Joint, Open Skies, E4B that are very, very small fleets. They're very, very old. They take a lot of hard work to maintain, but the missions are so specialized and the equipment is so specialized. Um, do any of you guys have thoughts about whether that would be a good idea? How could you even do something like that without, um, without, you know, jeopardizing those missions as you create something new and then phase something out? Um, I would like to, because the fleet size chart has uh, taken a, a prominent role both in our study and in Todd's, I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that the concept for that came from the Northrop Grumman Analysis Center. And uh, MITRE was able to reproduce and extend uh, their findings, and I believe Todd did the same thing. So I just want to make sure that that, that, that uh, is on the floor. The, uh, the other thing that I want to mention is that fleet size, cost, as, uh, cost per aircraft and fleet size is a measure of an input. It's not a measure of an output. It's not a measure of a, of a capability or the ability to do a mission. So uh, if you need to do the mission, then you need to get, you need to buy the capability and that may not necessarily come 
in a large fleet. It might be a, a small fleet, but you, but you need to do that. The big, another big question in our minds is, is uh, so far we have not had a large fleet of fifth gen capabilities such as uh, F-22 or B-2. And I think it's well publicized the maintainability and the O&M costs that those aircraft entail. So the question there becomes, uh, if say the F-35 becomes our first uh, fifth gen larger fleet uh, aircraft, will the model will the will the model that's been proposed uh, bear bear out? And I think everybody hopes that's the case, but that's uh, TBD as far as we're concerned. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, I just wanted to highlight. I had to go and remind myself of the names of some of these aircraft because they're in such small numbers. You never really hear about them. But just a few examples of the types of small fleets we're talking about here, like the OC-135. We have two of those, uh, and if you think that they have a lot of commonality with the other 135 platforms, they don't. Uh, different maintenance pipeline, everything. Uh, the E-11, we have three of those. Uh, the MC-12, we have four of those left. The C-20, we have five of them. C-32, we have six. The C-40, we have 11. Uh, the C-37, we have 12. A lot of cargo aircraft in there, uh, very small numbers. And maintaining these specialized fleets, uh, in some cases, I think we got to ask ourselves, do we need to do this? Uh, could we combine this and, and do that function another way without maintaining a separate fleet? Or is there a way, yes, to do it differently than we do it? Because a lot of those aircraft you cited are commercial aircraft that are doing basically the same mission they're doing in the commercial world, not the 135s so much. You could but lease the BizJets, the C-40s, yeah. the C-32s are airliners and large business jets flying the way airliners and large business jets usually do. Could we rely on the global logistics infrastructure that already exists for those aircraft rather than having so much of it be Air Force specific? Or just make it contractor owned, contractor operated. Buy it as a service, let them deal, let, let them, you know, let it be part of someone else's large fleet. Uh, and these don't necessarily need to be military aircraft for all the missions that they do. Do we have any more questions out there? This gentleman right here. Yeah, I, I'm Dale Johnson, Air Force A-9. I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, our, our new way of fighting wars is very clinical, um, you know, very focused on, you know, taking the fight to, you know, the, 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 the command structure, the military forces of sparing the, uh, you know, the populations. It's, it's become very clinical, and I'm not saying that's the wrong way to go, but at the end of the day, we're always worried if we get engaged in that war that another adversary is going to take advantage of it. And so we always have to size our force to do that twice. Maybe the, the way to go is that we still have our force to do that clinical, you know, modern war, but our second force is one that's going to go back to World War II strategy. I'm going to take out power plants. I'm going to take out refineries. I'm going to shut down your container ports. I'm going to make it hurt. I'm going to make it hurt really, really bad. It's going to be, you know, Neanderthal tactics. I can do that force cheaply. I mean, I'm dealing with lots of targets that are well menstruated. We probably built half the infrastructure. And as long as we're demonstrating it that we have the will to do it, okay, now we've got deterrence. And it's completely non-nuclear, so I'm not escalating it to a nuclear thing. But again, we still fight our, our first sophisticated war if we have to. 
and just the adversaries now are deterred because the second force, which again can be done with a lot of fourth generation forces, uh, a lot of standoff weapons, and hey, don't push us. We're engaged over here. You know we're engaged. Second force is going to break you hard. And I don't even have to field a, an army force to come in and occupy you afterwards because I'm not planning it. I'm going to break you so hard that I'm not worried about it anymore. I, I think you bring up an interesting point. You're talking about um, a different theory of victory, if you will, of theory of deterrence. Uh, one of punishment. And what we did in our forest planning construct, we assumed uh, what the defense strategy does, and that is one uh, strategy of denial, uh, preventing a great power aggressor from achieving the objectives of its campaign uh, strategy. And having enough force structure, capability, and capacity to convince them that if you try to aggress, we can stop you. You will fail. So it's not worth it and therefore you have uh, deterrence. Uh, one, one quickie on our force planning construct, or sizing construct for the Air Force. We made your point exactly in our report. If we are engaged against a China or a Russia, that could create opportunity for another aggressor to take advantage of the fact that we've deployed most of our force structure into another theater. How do we deter a second great power aggressor from taking advantage of that, that fact? We think the Air Force in particular ought to be sized to deny China and Russia nearly simultaneously uh, from aggressing. However, our force sizing construct was for the Air Force. That doesn't necessarily apply to the other services. The pacing threat for the Army is a conflict, a major conflict in Europe. Pacing threat for the Navy and the Marine Corps is a major conflict in the Pacific region. But when you take a look at the kind of force structure you might deploy to a fight, say, with Russia along NATO's uh, eastern frontier or with China in the Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pacific is going to be uh, air, maritime, cyberspace-centric. In Europe, it's going to be air, land, space, and cyber-centric. Air is common to both of those. That's why we think it's important that we don't have a monolithic force planning construct that says all services should size against the same requirements, but we differentiate across services and say, what is your pacing challenge? And we think the pacing challenge for the Air Force really is China and Russia. Ma'am? Kathleen Robertson. I'm a consultant. I've been on the Air Force um, force structure study, just recently did the Navy uh, senior study review on capabilities. You st I was in private industry. I want to ask you a question about industry, because we talk about this as if, hey, the government's doing all this. But when, in the acquisition world, we went to, I'm just going to go to the prime contractor and my friend over here and I both have been in the middle of the F-35 on different occasions. When you go below that prime level, and the question is, how much capabilities are we actually denying ourselves by not being able to penetrate that and go down into those other suppliers? So now you have conversations going on about the sixth generation. And in consulting with some of these other second-tier uh, suppliers, I have encouraged them to drive that conversation so that we don't get distracted by the platform. So 
You talked about capabilities and deliveries. Is there another way to do that? I mean, I think one of the things that came out from several of the studies is that in the future, we've got to pay more attention to the payloads and sensors that go on the platforms. And in many cases, those are coming from second tier and third tier contractors uh, and not just focus on the platforms. And I think the you know traditional approach in the Air Force and the other services has been to focus on the big platforms built by the prime contractors. That's still necessary because you need the platform, uh, but more and more in the future, the capabilities and the way that you stay ahead of the threat cycle uh, is going to be in changing out the payloads, the sensors, the munitions, everything that goes on the platform. Uh, that's how you keep it modern. That's how you keep it relevant and effective in the future. And so that's where, you know, I think DOD is starting to do this. They're starting to try to do a better job of reaching out. Uh, to those smaller firms that may have that technology that will give us uh, a cutting edge in the future. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is problems with contracting, right? And anyone who's done business uh, with the military knows it's a real pain to get on a contract. <laughs> and if you're a small business and you're not familiar, if you're commercially oriented and you have not worked with the Department of Defense before, it may take you a long time and cost you a lot of money and a lot of heartache uh, to try to figure out how to do this and how to even work with DOD. Uh, and so, you know, the solution to a lot of companies is they either exit the market and they just stay commercial uh, or they team up with a prime. <laughs> and they sell to the government through a prime because it's much easier. Uh, and so I think, yeah, we've got to do a better job of being able to reach out and directly access some of those innovative companies. Yeah, Todd brought up a, a really important point that I was also going to say in terms of doing business with the government is incredibly difficult. So there are some strategic advantages for those sub-tier suppliers to partner with the Prime because the Prime are experienced in understanding uh, all the record keeping and, and so forth, all the requirements of, of the FARs so that they keep everybody out of trouble. However, as we move more towards open, uh, open mission systems and open architectures, this is an opportunity for where uh, those innovative, smaller companies may find the opportunity to be able to come to the government and compete uh, on their smaller capabilities outside of a large integrated platform. But that is one of the significant challenges if the Air Force does wind up moving to large numbers of small fleets that turn over rapidly. It's comparatively easy for a larger company to retool and make the investment necessary to switch from platform to platform year to year. Smaller companies that are trying to get on the next platform, not only will they have to change their design rapidly as the uh, systems evolve, but the numbers are not sufficient necessarily to recoup that investment up front for a smaller company where you're just putting one or two things on a particular platform. And I, did, I wanted to add to that that, and I think the open systems piece is, is very, very important. In other work that we've done, you know, platforms that are coming online today, i.e. the aircraft, you might expect to have several decades worth of service life. But in the meantime, the, uh, the innovation cycle for sensors, computation, and so forth is happening on a maybe a two to three or five year cycle. And so it's really important that the things that we purchase today are, uh, are designed such that they can uh, rapidly change out some of those technologies. And it's not, I think there's a grasp of this in the software world where you have a, you have a 
common uh, uh, processor, but lots of different software with lots of different capabilities can run on it, and that evolves very quickly. Um, I don't think we're there yet on the hardware side of things in terms of uh, things that fly that have to have uh, a higher level of integration, weight and balance, power, cooling, and so forth. But how we solve that swap problem so that uh, our, our, our platforms of the future can, can effectively bolt on a new radar for, uh, for, for the missions to come or, or something like that, those types of things aren't really in the vernacular quite yet, but I think they need to be. I think I saw a question here. Afternoon. My name is uh, John Bloker. I'm the uh, Air Force Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Um, I have a question to get back to Mr. Harrison's analogy from your, uh, from your presentation at the beginning. You talked about being in a power on stall. That's where we're at. Um, at being a pilot that's been in one of those power on stalls, you, you don't get out with, with little tweaks and a very minor change. But it sounds like what we're talking about is, is pennies on the dollar savings from getting rid of a couple small fleets and, and, and minor tweaks that are going to kind of eke us by. Um, what's, the, what's the groundbreaking fix that really changes that graph that says this is, this is how we're going to get to where the NDS asks us to be? Well, to continue the analogy, you got to put your nose down hard, right? Uh, and so I think that's where we got to really buckle down on uh, changing the force that we have today. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it may look like it's, you know, pennies on the dollars with getting rid of these small fleets. It adds up. Uh, get rid of a dozen of them. Uh, and then we'll be talking some real money. Um, and, I mean, you got to look at, you know, headquarters staff, all of that stuff that goes with it. Uh, you got to look at all of the maintenance, uh, you know, infrastructure that goes with all these small fleets. You got to look at all the training infrastructure that goes with them. I mean, you got to make some clear cuts. Uh, and then, you know, another thing that comes with it, uh, once you've eliminated all of those jobs, uh, and that's really where you save money. People don't like to talk about it, but eliminating jobs is how you save money. Um, once you've done that, uh, then you got to go and you got to close facilities. Uh, and so you need Congress to help. Congress has got to be a partner with all of this. Uh, and so I think you've got to downsize before you can position yourself to grow. So I think that's how you put your nose down and recover. Let me disagree with Todd. Uh, <laughs> Todd's a friend. We've known each other for a, a long time. Uh, but uh, the Air Force cannot cut itself out of this problem. It cannot cut enough force structure, be it small fleet sizes, uh, infrastructure, or people. It has done that for decades. The Air Force is, what, about half the size it was at the end of the Cold War? And yes, the Air Force budget is uh, near an all-time high, but guess what? That chart says a lot. And look at the procurement that occurred in the previous defense buildup cycles. We have not had a defense buildup that's been real in terms of capabilities on the ramp since the 1980s. And one or two or three years of increased TOA for the Air Force is not going to uh, help the Air Force feel the Air Force needs or any of the forces that we have uh, suggested in our reports. It's going to need a sustained increase in billions of dollars for 20 years or more to help fill the gap created by 20 years of insufficient budgets. I'm going to violently agree with Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the first things I want to say is, I think 
before we get uh, too far off on the, the small fleet bandwagon and, and we need to get rid of small fleets because they're so terrible, we need, also need to understand that when you have uh, a mission such as what Open Skies does, you don't want a large fleet of that, right? Because it's a very niche mission and it's one that the nation relies on the Air Force to be able to do. So there are some mission areas where having a very niche capability really means you're gonna end up with having a very small fleet. Now, part of the problem is that those are really old 707s, right? Um, so there are different ways that we can look at finding a, a more common airframe that can make those types of specialized missions more affordable. C-32, C-40, guess what? Those are the VIP special airlift missions for our nation's leadership. So they have to have a very specialized suite of network uh, communications, defensive ca uh, capabilities that you're not gonna get sitting in first class on a commercial airliner. So there's a certain element where we can talk about divesting small fleets but there's also a point where we just have to recognize that they're a fact of life and part of our commitment to our nation and the missions that our nation asks of us. And finally, if you take a look at some of the um, unmanned systems that are f fairly affordable, not just in terms of ownership costs, but uh, uh, their reliability and so forth, guess what? RQ4 and Q9, also small fleets. There's 35 RQ4s. There's 250-some-odd MQ9s also very small fleets. So we need to understand really what are the dynamics that are underlying these small fleets of why they're effective. Is it because of sort of the, the simple functionality of uh, these unmanned systems? Uh, because they're certainly not unmanned, if you will. They're remotely piloted and they take a tremendous amount of support from the state side. So it really is kind of a, a, a misnomer. But we need to take a look at what are the underlying reasons and dynamics why there, you see such success in these RPA fleets, which are very small, and what are the things that we can do to then mirror that, and how, with the, the other special missions, how can we capture better savings, not by divesting the small fleet, but by creating more commonality there. And then finally, in terms of your question, what do we do to be able to get out of this power on stall? I think something that would be very dramatic, first of all, is to really let our, our nation's leadership and Congress know how broken the Air Force is. Because the Air Force has been making it work for so long on so little that this, the nation is taking for granted that the Air Force will be there. And as I said earlier, the Air Force is the foundation of all of our ability to project military power. If the Air Force fails, none of the other services can do what they do. And so what I would also suggest is it's time for us to be able to break out of our classified budget those things that are passed through dollars. Because the way that our budget works is generally peanut butter spread across the three services. Well, guess what? It, one of the charts that uh, Todd had demonstrates the classified budget is just about equal to all of the other procurement budgets that the Air Force has. It's about equal. Now, how much of that is actually blue core functionality for the Air Force and the things that we do for our national security, and how much of that really goes towards those other government agencies and pass-through dollars that the Air Force never really sees? And if we could break that out, I think we could begin having an honest conversation about where do we secure some of the funding we need to recapitalize and rebuild. So in defense of uh, my approach here, my two <laughs> friends disagreeing. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, my opinion is you can't grow your way out of this, uh, that you cannot count on the budget continuing to increase like it has over the past two decades, uh, because what we have seen is that 
we won't use it to grow the force. We won't use it to modernize. We'll just sink more and more of it into O&M. Uh, and so I think we first have to fix that problem. Uh, and it's not just about eliminating these aircraft, it's keeping the mission, putting it on a different platform. Uh, I will challenge you, Heather, though, that I don't think the MQ-9 fleet counts as a small fleet. Uh, we got a couple hundred of them. Um, now, the RQ-4, you're absolutely right, it's a small fleet. We also have another small fleet with very similar overlapping capabilities, the U-2. Um, you know what, maybe we retire the U-2s, buy more RQ-4s. Um, you know, <laughs> they are still in production. Uh, so, I mean, I think there are alternatives for the Air Force to maintain capabilities, uh, which is first and foremost, uh, maintain the missions, do the mission, uh, but do it in a more cost-effective, you know, responsible way for the taxpayer. I just, I don't think we can count on growing ourselves out of this problem. It hasn't worked. So I don't think I saw any other questions. So, oh, this gentleman. And this when, is going to be our Peter's last one, uh, I'm sorry. Former Secretary of the Air Force who's done a lot of those lines in my life. I wonder whether anybody should look at whether the national defense strategy is simply unexecutable. It has occurred to me that maybe we ought to become the next North Korea. We ought to hunker down behind our nukes, uh, get some secure networks so the Chinese can stop stealing all of our stuff. And, uh, and really be like North Korea, that we, uh, after all, are facing in China, what, 4x the population and potentially 4x the national budget? And are we really able to, uh, to fight against that, given where we are? I mean, I haven't seen any major improvement in our capabilities since we started the MQ-1 program in 2000. And I wonder whether, realistically, given the budgets we have, any of this is executable. That's a spicy hot take. Who wants to take that? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start. Uh, excellent question, Mr. Secretary, and thank you for that. And thank you for your service to our, our nation. Um, I, I will tell you that um, it begins with the assessments like you've seen, um, uh, talked about today, of uh, honest assessments of what is required to execute the strategy at a low to level, uh, moderate level of risk. If you don't know that, then all the follow-on arguments about fishies and so forth are, are moot. Once you understand that, now you can begin to talk about what level of resources are affordable, and then you can assess the difference between the two, uh, the risk. And I don't think that has occurred yet. Uh, I'm hopeful that in this next uh, uh, POM, the Air Force will propose a budget that will put it on a trajectory uh, toward 386, and we can begin to make uh, uh, those assessments. Uh, is it, uh, I don't, I agree with Todd in that I don't think we're going to see significant growth in the defense budget over the next few years. So uh, uh, the Air Force has to take a hard look at what it will be able to afford between now and 2030 and beyond. But more importantly, you have to look, as you well know, across the department for trade-offs, not just within a capability area, within a service, within a domain, but across domains, across the services for the important trade-offs. So we can reduce risk overall, and that's what's most important from a department perspective. 
I would just paraphrase a former president that there's nothing so wrong with the Air Force that can't be fixed by what's right with the Air Force. Uh, I think that, you know, the Air Force can rectify this situation. It's going to require a lot of hard, painful choices. Um, you know, the national defense strategy, I think it can be executed uh, within a, a budget amount that the nation is willing to afford. Um, at the same time, though, we have to be cognizant that you know, the National Defense Strategy of 2018 as uh, a snapshot of strategic thinking at that time, that may change. If there's a new administration or even in the same administration, um, that strategy may change in the future and the Air Force has got to be willing and able to adapt to that. And certainly over the next 10 or 15 year period that we've been discussing here today, uh, strategy is going to evolve. Uh, and what the Air Force is asked to do, what the military is asked to do, is going to evolve over that time period. So I think, you know, we've got to go into this, um, you know, and view it as a dynamic strategic planning process, not a static planning process. And, uh, you know, the only thing that I'll add to what, what Mark and um, Todd had said is that I would not want to live in a world that was not led by the U.S., in the memory of all of the senior Air Force leadership and much of its junior leadership. The service lost a secretary and a chief in large part for daring to prepare for this strategy. It is the effects of that on the Air Force continue to show in a certain reluctance to come forward and say what is necessary. Uh, you're hearing from some of the people up here that there is support for that kind of a vocal and dispassionate and yet intensely passionate advocacy. I'll finish up by saying uh, thank you to Todd. I, uh, I have read the report and I thought he did a monumental task and it really came together nicely and also thank you to CSIS for, uh, for hosting this event and it's really great to get these ideas uh, out and into discussion. That's where the future is. Thank you. On that note, I want to thank all of you guys for joining us. Um, we are going to continue this conversation outside with beers and other drinks. Um, so things are about to get more fun. Um, so let's give a round of applause to our panelists and thank you guys.